Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas and social change take hold. My name is Carrie Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. This is our last episode of the season, and I think you're going to love it. Today, we've got with us Alex Orfinger, publisher of the Washington Business Journal. But before we get into this conversation, I want to tell you a little bit about him. Alex arrived in Washington in 1996, when most people thought the Washington Business Journal was an oxymoron. The business of Washington was government, but that perception was wrong and would drastically change Driving that change became Alex's mission. For over two decades as publisher, Alex worked out front and behind the scenes to develop a strong identity for the region's business sector. And after a brief stint away, he came back recently to the helm as publisher of the Washington Business Journal this year to double down on a city that he loves. As you will soon hear, Alex is passionate about justice, equity, and impact, and the role that the business community plays in advancing all three. He works and lives at the intersection of business and community, and I think you'll appreciate what he's got to say. Be sure to hang on until the very end for a very special message, and I'll see you on the other side. This has been such a, such a year, <laughs> such a year on so many levels for so many people, but this has been a year of change for you, um, having left a position and come back to a position, and, and gosh, how much fun it has been to to read your words and to watch you over this year. Um, you know, most of our listeners are here in the DC area, but there are plenty who are not. And so I'm curious if you can maybe just tell us a little more about you and your, your journey and the connection that you've had to the Washington Business Journal. Oh, thanks, Carrie. Uh, it's a real joy to be here. Uh, I've listened to some of your other podcasts and I'm just really you know honored to be included in this, you know, um, august group of, um, of, of speakers. You know, I um, I spent, as you know, I spent 18 years as the publisher of the Business Journal up until, you know, four or five years ago. Then I took on some other sort of national positions, um, wanting to sort of, you know, sort of broaden my own professional horizons and do some different things. And I, I feel uh, really proud of what I accomplished doing that. But this return, as you know, coming back to being the publisher of the business journal, particularly at this moment, has been so meaningful to me. Um, I, I feel really passionate about what the, the mission of the business journals are and what we can do and how we can help businesses overall and how we can strengthen our communities. And it just seemed like, you know, there were many reasons why I came back um, and many paths that I took. But at this moment right now, um, what we what we what we need, and you know, it's so central to the business journal's mission, is to help businesses grow and prosper, and to particularly give them the tools that they need to get through the pandemic and to and the economic downturn that came along with it. And you know, we have the tools to do that. We just have to, we, you know, to use a, a really old expression. You know, it's like we have to just lean into that and really do that super, super well, and be really crystal clear about what that part of our mission is. But at the same time, you know, and this is where some of my own personal values come in. 
you know, if we if we don't do that, if we we need to do it in a way that also addresses the issues around systemic racism and income inequality, even before the pandemic and even before um, you know, the economic downturn. Greater Washington was, you know, right on the top of the list of the, the regions in the country that were shown greater disparity in income. The pandemic and the downturn are, you know, worse than those things. If we as a community can come together and in some way sort of change that trajectory, we'll be a better and healthier region for everybody, uh, not just for people that, you know, on one side of that, that income inequality spectrum. You have been such a force for so many years here in the D.C. region, but especially as of late, I think challenging business, including your own, right? Challenging the Washington Business Journal to think about that, to think about business beyond business, business beyond profit as our bottom line, to think about how capitalism works, when it works and when it doesn't. And I want to know a little bit more about why. What what drives you to push and, and prod as you do in, a, in such a lovingly way, too? <sighs> That's a great question. Um, you know, so, you know, well, you know, I mean, you know, some of this is just some, some of the things that are just personally, you know, the way that I'm, I need to be wired right now. You know, we all have a role that we're going to play in this world. You know, nobody's going to look at me at the end of my days and say, you know, I am, um, you've been a great publisher. You've made this amount of money or you've done this. But what I do want, what I want to be able to say to myself is that I left some mark on this community and then I've made it a better place for more people. Um, and it seems, it sounds so easy, but that's one of the reasons when I came back to this job, I made it very clear to myself that, you know, I, you know, I, I was really successful when I felt you know, really good about what I did in all those years. You know, we built a really good organization. Uh, we had great journalists who have found great careers all over the United States. Uh, we've had um, great people in our company that now are in leadership roles throughout the business journals community that I'm extraordinarily proud of. Um, I'm really proud of. I feel like we, we as the business journal made a mark in the community. But coming back at this moment, for me, it was different uh, because I felt that I needed to lean into it even more. You know, this whole issue around income inequality and race—it's—it's um, it's very complicated. Obviously, there are no simple solutions to it. I, of course, would love for there just to be something that you can just sort of say, "Let's just fix it." You know, we're talking about hundreds of years of issues that are interwoven with so many other other things. However, what I think the business journal's role can be is to, to, to show and to lead the business community through this in a way that they understand that it's in their long-term interest. And once they understand, once, once we begin to understand like, oh gosh, you know what, if we broaden the economic um, pie, if we, if we increase the size of the overall pie, it is actually better for everybody. It's not a zero-sum game where we take from you and therefore you know you lose everyone should do better as a result of that so when i speak to our our editor tavandana a lot you know i always use this example okay when we're writing a story like this let's focus on the ceo of a smaller or medium-sized company and that he or she should be able to understand why we're writing it why the business journal is writing it. Because we write about things to help them 
grow their business, advance their careers, understand the competitive environment, help them find another deal, give them business intelligence that they can't get anywhere else. So when you start talking about racism and systemic racism, how does that play into that? How does that, like, and you have to make the ties and you have to be explicit about it all the time. I'll give you another story on that, actually. Good, do it. So we, Bond and I have done, um, you know, this year, um, we did two uh, small panel discussions, one with a series, a, a group of black business leaders and a second one just last week with a series that last week was when we published it with a group of white leaders. And, you know, many, we, we were very clear about why we did it. Um, we were very clear that we wanted to give voice to the black leaders separately in their own group. So, um, not because we were going to them for advice and counsel, because they're t- they they verbalized that they're tired about it, and they were very clear that it was that it was something that white business leaders had to tackle and had to jump into. Um, and then we had the group of white leaders, and I did get a call yesterday from someone who actually pushed back on that and found that the, our separation of the black and white leaders was um, was arbitrary was paternalistic um also asked me why it was just black and white and why it wasn't brown and other uh, people of color and uh, and all those questions were great questions right what i was so happy about was that you know that we're getting interactions about it mm-hmm. we're actually talking about it and a, a broader group of people are talking about it that's our objective that is a great objective. And you're right. I think that's the thing that often I think stops people before they even start the conversation, because there is so much of a fear of getting it wrong that it stops individuals from saying, I'm even going to start the conversation because what if I use the wrong words? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I offend someone? And we know this from having done so many of these conversations over the years that it is always better to start the conversation right? It's, it's always a chance to learn. It's always a chance to grow through that process. But I can imagine that that's been, that's been hard for the business journal too, to think about how they're thinking differently about reporting and, and engaging people in conversations. Yeah. I, I go back to something that um, a bank executive said a few months ago to me, and he just, and I, I keep it in my head all the time. You know, we just all, step, all have to come to this with grace. We have mm-hmm. to accept the fact that we will make mistakes and other people will make mistakes. And we just have to have grace in this moment, just grace. Um, I do, you know, so yeah, we're all going to make mistakes on this. You know, we've also turning the mirror on ourselves uh, is the other piece of this, you know, that as we get into this, we justifiably should be asked, well, what are you doing at the business journal? How are you approaching it? And we're on a journey ourselves. And, you know, we have, we have lots of work to do as an organization. We are taking seriously, at least you know, at this point, we, we take seriously that when we um, do public things like we announce you know, honorees, we're very careful that we have a broad pool of nominees um, and that you know, when we look at you know, public things as like panels and, you know, and, and all sorts of things like that, we make sure that we that all this reflects the community that we serve and that we also really dig deep into the community and give, you know, give voice to people that do not have traditional access to the media. Mm-hmm. I think we've done a good job on that. Um, yeah. 
and we have to keep working on it. It's not something that you magically change. That's right. It reminds me of a conversation we had earlier this season on the podcast with Ed Young, who was talking about how he had this discovery moment of he went back and did an audit of his own reporting and realized that of the 32 last scientists he had talked with, 28 of them had been men and realized he needed to do something about that. And and there is that discovery process and, and awareness process, right? Maybe it is simply opening our eyes to being to thinking about the impact that we are having, whether we intend to or not, right? Just being aware of those those biases that are hidden in the decisions that we all make. I mean, I had this interaction with our editors once. I'm not proud of this, but I'm about to tell you, but I'll share it. You know, you know we're putting together a panel. You know, we have a lot of panels all the time. And we had three guys on. And I was like, you know, I was, I was tired. I was at the end of the week. And they just looked at me on Zoom and they said, no, Alex. You know, and I'm like thinking to myself, come on, like <laughs> just this one time. <laughs> and they were like, no. <laughs> and I was really, it actually really meant a lot to me that they stood up to me and said, no, you're, we're not doing this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I will, you know, and they were totally right. I mean, I just was like, I was at the end of the week and I was tired. And I, right? just, yeah. I just want to like, oh, come on, it's just one time. Yeah. Business as usual. I say it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. On so many fronts. I want to talk about DC because DC uh, obviously is is this tale of two cities, right? We um, Those of, of our listeners who are outside of the DC region, I think see one side of DC, and that's probably more the Pennsylvania Avenue of DC. But there is such a rich and storied history of DC as you know it and as you see it. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about the DC that you're part of. It's so hard to talk about it because you have to break this into the before and after, mm-hmm. you know, before March the 12th or whatever date we all have in our mind. The city of Washington had finally come of age. We had been a, we were, and we will be again, a city that had a, you know, just this vibrant urban life. Uh, first, you know, obviously, you know, it had a vibrant urban life, I will just say. It had this restaurant scene, this theater scene, this retail scene, um, this tourism community that, like, fed it and fed good employment for many people. Um, and it's just who knows how that's going to come back, you know, in the after time, uh, before and after um, but it was also, you know, the tale of two cities that you talk about, though, is there was also, you know, before and after um, this growing disparity between the wealthy and the poor. This worry that I think many people had with, you know, how do you really maintain a city that works for everybody as opposed to just for the wealthy? How does the city not, how does it slow down its gentrification as, you know, the, this march of, um, this march just kept happening across the city of rising housing prices, pushing people, you know, people um, that were just being pushed out of historically black communities because, you know, they were cashing out on their only asset or they just were pushed out uh, because there were renters and rents just kept going up. Um, you know, that's aside from this, what this image of the city was, you know, the city that really, I believe, was a first class city. Uh, externally, but has, like many cities, had sort of its its own sort of underbelly of issues. Um, 
you know, the changing demographics of the city certainly were worrisome. And, you know, I don't personally want to live in a city that's like a gated community where it's a community that, you know, people all look like me. I think we're all richer by having a city and a community and a region, really, that reflects everyone. And, um, you know, so, I, you know, I think that the city is an, in, you know, even pre-pandemic, the city was an important crosswords. I think that there were many people that were working to really slow this pace down, and there were some really, really good signs. But I think that, you know, I, I think that the challenges in front of us and the challenges in front of us, just like any other cities, are going to be really enormous Yeah, as the, as, as the actual pandemic settles down. Right. You know, 30, 30 plus percent of small businesses in, in Washington are gone already. They're gone. Um, those are predominantly, you know, small, predominantly small businesses. Uh, I don't actually know off the top of my head what the percentage of those are, you know, minority communities or not. But you have to imagine that they're pretty high because those 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 communities never had a lot of access to capital to start with. Um, it's going to be really hard to restart that. Um, you lose small businesses. They don't return as quickly. They just don't. Um, so that's the part at restaurants are also, you know, restaurants are important part of the minority and the, and, you know, the small business community there, you know, the, there were places where people started businesses and built their own, you know, sort of built their futures based upon having a small restaurant. Um, so I, I don't know how that comes back quickly. Are you seeing any signals of, um, whether they be restaurant owners or people in the hospitality industry who have said could have held on for one wave, right? But here we are in December getting ready for our second wave. We're not going to be able to do this again. Are there shifts in industry that you're seeing yet? Something in terms of how individuals in the second wave who aren't going to be able to just hold on to that restaurant are thinking about what a future looks like. Yeah, I mean, there's some really great stories about that. Um, I spent a little bit of time with Kathy Hollinger, who's the head of the Restaurant Association Metropolitan in Washington, and she's an extraordinary person, an extraordinary leader, and has really held together the restaurant community in a way that I would not, I think is very challenging. Um, you know, we just recently, we, we honored her uh, as, as a COVID response leader of the year this year uh, for, for the work that she's done, but she really points to a couple of, you know, restaurant and restaurant owners that have, you know, that have changed their business model, that are sitting that are surviving on the delivery and home pickup piece, but also some other people that have just sort of changed their operations completely. I was with last week, I was with, um, I got last week or the week before I was with um, a guy that runs a cidery in Washington and um, it's really small business, um, really good cider also. And he talked about how he changed his, totally changed his business model. And this is something he's poured everything into this, but, there's some cork in the liquor system in Washington that allows a cidery to actually do home delivery. Hmm. Um, I think that's what he was telling me, but he's mm-hmm. uh, what my point is that he's totally changed his business to a, to a home delivery and a pickup model. How long could he survive on that? I, I can't answer that question, but I think that's really the question that Kathy and, and he sort of symbolized to me. Is, right. People can cobble this together, but, um, you know, there's so many factors that go into a restaurant, um, you know, after Christmas, I think it's going to be a really dark period, uh, for many businesses in greater Washington, not only restaurants, but other businesses, uh, as you know, as 
the winter sets in post Christmas, spending drops. There's only so far that um, we can push landlords to give rent relief as well. You know, we all think that that's such a simple issue. Well, you know, and I, and I do believe that there are scores, if not hundreds of landlords that have been extraordinarily generous with rental terms for uh, retail and restaurant tenants, but they also have obligations to their lenders. And it just there, it is a cascading problem that continues to happen. Um, so, you know, I think we're, I think these next few months are going to be very, very telling, uh, of, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I will also say that I think the mayor and the city administration have been doing as much as they can. They've been doing really decent work, good work, actually, not just decent work, about trying to get more funds into the sectors that really are hurting restaurants and the hotel community specifically. Yeah. You know, as, um, as heavy and difficult this time is, you know, it's, it's hard to listen to you and think, gosh, are we ever going to get past this? I think it's, it's good to remember all of the crises that have come before this, not to say that there's anything that has ever felt like this, right. But that my hope is that there will be a day and it's not too far where we will start to talk about DC as a thriving city again, but there are certainly, there are certainly a lot of work to help us get there. There's a lot of work that you are doing outside of the business journal that is also focused on building up and boosting DC as a thriving city. And it comes back to this theme of justice where you started today. And um, you and I have a shared connection and love around Jubilee housing. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and what this year has been like uh, on that front as it relates to to housing in the D- in the DC area. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I'm uh, I chair the board of Jubilee Housing, which is a um, an affordable housing group in Adams Mormon and Mount Pleasant and Columbia Heights. And uh, you know, our our goal is to provide um, deeply affordable housing for people um, who can least afford it, and give it to give them housing uh, close to good schools, good supermarkets, good services, transportation, and most importantly, their jobs. And, uh, you know, what drew me to it initially was really this question of justice, that it's really a matter of justice that people that have been long um, standing members of these communities, that as communities like Adams Morgan were gentrifying, they were being pushed out. And none of us, like, so how do we keep people there that are really our, you know, our service workers who are working in hotels, they're working in restaurants? How can we, you know, how do we keep the community rich and give them the same opportunities that other families in the neighborhood were getting as that community rose and all everything got better there? So that's what Jubilee Housing has been doing, and they've been doing it for 40 years. Um, so I was driven to it because... You know, for me, it was my opportunity to really meet people on that side of the spectrum, um, see the humanity of it, and bring the power of the business community to try to like, accelerate it. So we're really fortunate. We've got, um, you know, we've, um, you know, we've been, you know, the, our our families who are our residents have had, um, you know, limited to COVID exposure. We've been relatively safe as a community. Uh, many of them are unemployed. Uh, yeah, I think uh, many of them lost their jobs because they're in the service industry, but all of them, have, you know, a very high percentage of them have kept current on their front, which we're really proud of. Uh, you know, it says a lot about the community uh, that they have been able to do. They have been able to do that. What has affected it, though, is, you know, we've, we've had to be, um, you know, we've 
had a couple of projects that have been put on pause. So we've had um, one, two, three, four projects that require some additional city funding to get them into construction and into occupancy. And the city um, who has, you know, this, the city under this mayor has made um, enormous um, investments in affordable housing throughout the city. I mean, she is, um, she, she should be really praised for that pre-pandemic. It's been an extraordinary investment. But now the city budgets are a little tighter and um, uh, totally understandable. And, um, you know, the timing for this is going to be slowed down a little bit. So while we're okay right now, there's going to be some stress on, uh, you know, we have already bought the buildings um, and there's going to be some stress on our operation in the out years as we try to hold on to these buildings, awaiting some of the city funding to underwrite the the the, uh, the lower income housing that we need to make the deal actually work. Yeah. Well, Jubilee Housing has long been um, a uh, an organization that we have supported and and watched and have been so so proud to be affiliated with. And we'll make sure that we put in the show notes some information about Jubilee Housing and Justice Housing, which is I think something that I've I've really been um, proud to be part of with all of you. Well, I, I'll just add one other thing. Uh, the other piece on this is our work, Jubilee's work around returning citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, these are we have about a thousand men and women who return to D.C. every year from prison. Many of them come back and they don't have any access to family. They don't have uh, any access to decent housing. And the, these, the systems that are in place are not always that good uh, to reduce levels of recidivism. So but Jubilee's beginning to tackle that and really trying to help you know, this enormous number of men and women, hopefully more and more who will be returned to prison as you know, some of the other criminal justice issues get yeah. resolved. I want to stay on justice for a minute. At the top of this conversation, we were talking about how um, companies are thinking about their role in justice, thinking about capitalistic systems, thinking about racism, thinking about what they can do, what they should be doing, at least even how they enter the conversation. Um, I have been really fascinated tracking this trend that Harvard Business Review was the first to really call this out, that there is this shift moving from what has traditionally been seen as corporate social responsibility to a shift of corporate social justice. What does that mean? What does that look like as companies are really questioning what is their role in addressing big structural inequities? And I'm curious, you know, what you are seeing, if anything yet, I think it is still in some ways companies are trying to figure this out, but are there any early indications or signals you're seeing that companies are getting more embedded? And this is not about checking boxes for DEI trainings. This is companies getting more embedded to think about their role in how systems operate. So I don't have a lot of good evidence yet in Greater Washington, but I think we will. You know, as I mentioned here earlier, you know, I, you know we're going to be doing some some research in the next couple of months uh, that should indicate how serious companies are. You know, again, part of what I think the Business Journal needs to do is um, sort of report and track and hold businesses accountable over the long term for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a lot of change in, in messaging at the national level. Um, you know, some of the business roundtable type companies, you know, are talking about, are changing the way that they're thinking about, you know, their overall mission, that it's not just about um, shareholder, shareholder value. And I know you've had some earlier speakers who have talked about that. Mm-hmm. 
I don't, I have not seen those words coming out of local CEOs yet. Uh, I think that's the part that we need to start talking about and hearing. You know, I don't, I do think that there, there will be some sort of change around not thinking about corporate philanthropy just as a band-aid to solve some problems. And that they're really talking about how do we go about being a change engine to, you know, change systems as opposed to just the problems that are caused by certain things. Right. Uh, but I don't, I, I don't know the answer to your question. Yeah. You can do a little more poking and prodding and certainly, you know, I will, but it's about unraveling, right? This really mess, this mess that has been built to get a little deeper un- underneath that. And then thinking about how we, we build back better in the process. Last question for you. So signals. What signals are you seeing that you hope stay stay with us, right? So I've been asking a lot of folks, this year has been unbelievably complicated and difficult and hard and heavy for so many people on so many levels. And yet, right, if we are always to look for a silver lining in this, is there something that you have changed or done or um, shifted in this year that you hope you hold on to. Oh, I, I um, yeah. There's actually quite a few actually, and I, I think these actually are like not just me. I think that there's some of these things that are going to be more sort of social, so, sort of social thing. Number one, mm-hmm. you know, I think um, you know, on a really personal level, I think I've let people in uh, to me a lot more this year. You're sitting here in my office. Um, you see what I, how I how I live. Mm-hmm. You see who I am. And I think because we're sitting here across a screen from each other, for me, I work a lot harder to find a personal connection with people. And in order to find a personal connection for me, it means I have to reveal something. I have to be myself. I have to come as my authentic self more frequently, which is to say that I didn't. But, you know, it's like it was easy when you're like in an office or you're going to lunch someplace. You can keep your suit on and, you know, you keep your armor on. But I'm sitting here now. I'm in a pair of jeans. I'm in a shirt, you know. Um, you know, I have my and, and for our listeners who are PBS NewsHour watchers, as I am, you look like you could be on the set of PBS NewsHour because you've got a great bookshelf behind you filled with all these great books. Yeah. Although I have to tell you, though, and uh, this does, this isn't going to work on the, on the podcast, but, you know, everybody did say, Alex, you do need to curate that bookshelf a little bit. Um, <laughs> because there was one that sort of jumped out and I had it up there for weeks, but it was one of my favorite books. It was this. Oh, gosh. <laughs> It's a biography of Hitler, Yes, which was a very good, great book, I should say, but I did decide to take it off. With the big, bold letters, I'm sure it stood out more than others. So uh, you just have to be a little careful. So anyway, I think that's one thing is just sort of this this presence and this being your authentic self. You know, I think this, this idea that you don't have to be in the office. You don't have to be present all the time that you could work anywhere is going to, you know, for me, is going to really permeate the rest of my professional career. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to be in an office. You know, I can do this everywhere. And I think I can have short interactions like this over Zoom as opposed to actually having to go to somebody's office. I think that's going to be a real changer for so many, so many people. Um, so those are two things that just immediately come to mind. Yeah, I, I would agree. It does feel like there's more, there's a level of intimacy that we would have never had if we were sitting in Starbucks right now, right? Um, maybe yeah. we would have had a nice warm cup of coffee in front of us, but um, this allows us to connect in a way that's funny, right? We're, we're less physically connected, but we certainly are, are connected at different levels now. I, I, I was with um, a CEO the other night who also thinks, you know, he, he was sharing this idea that we really have to focus on 
people's mental health right now. And I think that's the other piece that I, I think, I think many of us have in a way, you know, it's like, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I worry a lot about people's like where they are personally right now, because it's such a stressful time economically and, you know, health wise that, and I, and the isolation and how it's affecting certain people, you know, right. particularly people that are single. Well, not even that. I mean, people that are single and living alone, there's some obvious things, but I think it's causing isolation for a lot of other people too, even people that are living with people. And it's this idea that you have to take care of not just your family, but you also have to take care of yourself in this time. And if you don't do that, um, you're just, you're, you're cheating, you're, you're cheating your family, you're cheating your professional environment. Right. For yourself. And right. That, that, is, that is sort of sticking with me also. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good place to end is just a reminder to always take good care, right? Take good care of ourselves and our loved ones and our employees. And, um, you know, hopefully we all get through this together and stronger on the other side of it. Well, thank you, Carrie. Thank you so much, Alex. I've learned so much from you. I love every interaction I get to be with you. And I hope there's, there's more of that in the year to come. Mm-hmm. So. so that brings us to the end of season one. We will be rolling out a new season with all new shows in about a month. Until then, I hope you take good care, tell the people in your life that you love them and stay safe. I'm looking forward to being back here with you soon enough. Happy holidays and see you next year.